Well, we've already read our passage this morning, so let's jump right into it. You're in John chapter 5, and uh, I'm just going to read one verse that we didn't read, verse 16. For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Well, what was he talking about? Well, the formerly paralyzed man is up and walking around. We talked about him last week. He's up and he's walking around in their midst and having the the healing that he had received took place on the Sabbath. And there was an uproar. The Jewish leaders, those that were among them, the Pharisees, Sadducees, those that were priests, Levites and others, they were in an uproar because this man, this miracle worker is now breaking the Sabbath himself and he's encouraging others to break the Sabbath. They had to stop him. Uh, They had to shoot him down in some sort of way. Let me ask you a question. Did you ask yourself, I did, ask myself, I wonder why Jesus decided to do this miracle on the Sabbath. He could have done it, Sabbath being Saturday, of course. He could have done it on Friday. He could have done it on Sunday. He could have avoided the whole, you know, the whole ruckus if he would have just not done it on the Sabbath and irritate those people. (laughs) No, folks, that was the point. He did it on the Sabbath on purpose. It was time to confront the Jews, time to confront the leaders who had appropriated the temple, had appropriated the law, and had appropriated all of the ceremonies for themselves. They were crossing sea and land, Jesus said in Matthew 23, 15. They were crossing sea and land to make one proselyte, and all the while they were making him two times the child of hell. They weren't doing them any good. They were condemning them even worse. And so these were power-hungry, money-hungry people, money-mongers, if you will. They had to keep their position. They had to keep their power. Jesus was a threat to them because, as Nicodemus found out, he was a man come from God because of the miracles he could do. And he was just not like them. And he was the real deal. And they had to do something to get him stopped. He was a threat. So remember from chapter five, verse one, all the way through the next several chapters for the next four, the issue is Sabbath breaking. Jesus is Sabbath breaking and they're just not going to let him get away with it. And so these Jewish leaders believed he broke the Sabbath. He had promoted breaking the Sabbath. And in verse 16, they were persecuting him because of this. Now, I need to give a word of clarity to you this morning. Uh, Jesus, it's very important. I had somebody actually ask me last Sunday morning going out. Said, they said it sort of, well, so Jesus could be selective in obedience. I mean, he wrote the law, so he didn't have to obey the law. Folks, there's nothing that could be further from the truth. Jesus had to fulfill the law in every point in order to be the innocent child of God. If Jesus was a lawbreaker, then he was not innocent. If he was not innocent and sinless, then he was no appropriate sacrifice for our sins. He could not die for our sins if he had been a lawbreaker. Amen? He could not do that. So Jesus was not a lawbreaker. You said, but pastor, it says in the passage that he broke the Sabbath. Well, let me give you this word of clarity. It's so important. You see, these Jewish leaders had added 39 categories of laws that were contained in a book called the Talmud. There were two books of commentaries or oral traditions. Maybe we could say it rules and regulations and stipulations that this group added to God's law to make up the Talmud, which included two books. There were two books. One of them was called the Mishnah and one of them was called the Gemara. And these two books uh, were written in addition to God's actual law that he wrote in the Torah. So the Torah 
is in the Talmud, but the Talmud is not the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. We call it the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, the Torah. But this Talmud included much more. Uh, What was it? Well, there was the Mishnah and the Gemara. What's the difference? Well, the Mishnah included all of the original version of the oral law that the rabbis and all of these religious leaders added to the law. And then the Gemara was the record of all of the debates and discussions about those oral traditions. Well, how many of them were there? How big was it? I read this last, uh, well, I read actually last year, I read a story about the Gemara, how this book of commentaries and debates, if you could put it in on eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper, single space, font, font 10 in Courier New, it would be four foot high. How'd you like to carry a book like that to school, huh? There's a book like that. That was the Gemara, not counting the Mishnah. So you see what they had done. They had taken the law of God and they had added a lot to it. And so I want to see if I can draw you a little picture and I want you to get your pen out of the, out of your bench in front of you there. And I want you to get a piece of paper. You've got one. I think we gave you one and you take that piece of paper and I, this is going to be a version of high tech fill up here for just a moment. All right. Uh, let's see. That's not the right pen. That little thing. Oh, there it is right there. Okay, good. So here's what I'd like you to do. First thing I'd like you to do is I'd like you to write this right here Write this on your piece of paper. Just write 600. Well, matter of fact, I'm going to drop that down a little bit. 613. Just write that down. You got it? Then I want you to draw a little square around that. 613. What is 613, Pastor Phil? There's 613 laws in the Old Testament. 613 laws. You say, well, I thought there were 10. There were 10, and then all the derivatives and the applications make up 613 of those laws. But these religious leaders were very, originally they were afraid that people were going to get too close to breaking these laws. So they started building fences around the law like this. And then they built another fence around the law like this. Okay. And so this first fence right here, we'll call the Mishnah and the second fence we'll call the Gemara. And these two make up this word that I just told you, Talmud. See that? Talmud. And what these two were, were additions to the law. The idea was, well, these people might get too close to the law and they might get too close to breaking the law. And so what we need to do is we need to build fences around the law and we'll back people up and they won't, they won't, uh, they won't break the law of God because they'll, they'll be further and further away from it. The only thing was by the time that Jesus came on the scene, nobody was talking about this law. Everybody was talking about this other law and they were tithing the mint, the coming and the anise, and they were forgetting the weightier, the weightier issues of the law, like take care, taking care of mother and father in their old age. Jesus talked about that. And so this was huge. The Talmud, this is what we're talking about. You say, well, when they said Jesus broke the Sabbath, what did he do? He didn't break the Sabbath that God said, which he said, rest on the Sabbath. What he did was, is he challenged all of this stuff. He did it in Matthew. You have heard that it has been said by them of old time, but I say unto you, that's what he was doing. He was challenging all of that. It was time to do away with that. You say, well, that really doesn't have anything to do with us, does it? Well, in the day and age in which we live, we have a propensity to know what God says and try to add to it too. How many of you ever been to a church that added a whole lot to what God actually had to say about how we ought to behave, what we ought to do? Yeah. Now listen to me. When we do that, we're doing what the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the religious leaders of the synagogues did. Jesus challenged them directly. This is what they were talking about, the law-breaking. Folks, Jesus never broke his father's law. He was totally 
innocent in every single way. So let's get into this and I want you to see it very clearly. So without a lot of setup, because you remember we preached about it last week, there was a man walking around among them carrying his mat who Jesus had raised up from his infirmity. He'd been laying there paralyzed for 38 years and with a word he raised him up and they weren't happy about his legs being healed. They were furious that he was healed on the Sabbath and that he was carrying around his mat. So what did Jesus do in response? Well, we began reading a moment ago, and the first thing that Jesus did was he claimed equality with God. He claimed equality with God, his Father. That's verse 17 and 18. Jesus, on answering them, my Father has been working until now, and I have been working. And here's what he said. This is important. This equality of nature or equality of person Sometimes theologians call this their co-essential nature. Essentially, they are of the same nature. And so here's how Jesus said it. Jesus said, my father works on the Sabbath. That would have just sent them, how could he say that? My father works on the Sabbath. That's what he was saying. My father is working until now and I work also. Well, he was saying two things there that were amazing. One, he called God his father. And if you look at verse number, number 17 or verse number 18, when the Jews, they sought all the more to kill him because not only did he break the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father. And how, what did they understand that to mean? Making himself equal with God. Jesus said, my father's works on the Sabbath. He said to them, Hey guys, you are in error. My father doesn't take a day off like you think he does. If he did, the universe would collapse because the Bible says he upholds everything by the word of his power. I mean, do you want God to take a day off on Saturday and just not do anything and just, you know, take a siesta? Do you want God to do that? No, you do not. Otherwise, the whole thing collapsed. God is maintaining everything. Amen. You say, well, what did he do? Well, you said in, Gen in Genesis, he worked six days and rested on the seventh. That's right. That doesn't mean he folded his arms and took a nap, took a siesta. That's not what he did. Isaiah 40, 28 says the everlasting God neither sleeps nor slumbers. He doesn't. What he did was is he worked six days, stopped on the seventh day from his regular work and set a precedent so that we knew that we needed to stop and recognize him weekly and rest and refresh and rethink and think about where everything comes from. The next thing Jesus said is, not only does my father work on Saturday, but I work like my father works on the Sabbath. Boy, he's really digging this deeper. This was the issue. They said Jesus was breaking the law of God. Well, I'm here to tell you and the scripture teaches no way. Jesus was breaking their control over the law. Jesus was breaking their monopoly over the law and how they used it. And I just want to say this very clearly today. It is never a wrong day to do good. Let me turn it around. It is always the right day to do good. In the book of Luke, Jesus walks into a synagogue and there's a man with a withered hand. And he saw the man with the withered hand. It was the Sabbath and all, and it was the setup. All of these Jewish leaders were there and they were watching him like a hawk. He's going to break the Sabbath again. And he looked at them and he said to them, it's okay for you to lead your donkey out to get water, but not to heal this man of this withered hand that he's been suffering with all this time. And he healed him. You see, they were willing to do mundane things, but not good things. Isn't that important for us to understand? It's always the right day to do good, folks. And Jesus was doing good. This was a constant issue with Jesus and the Jewish leaders. Now watch. 
So what did the Jews say? They said, let's kill him for blasphemy. He said God was his father. He's claiming to be equal with God. Now, whether we like it or not, the Jews understood him to be saying, I am God because I am my, I am my father's son and my father is God. And therefore I am divine. I am just like my father. He's claiming equality with God. Now don't miss it. Jesus is divine. He is God who came in the flesh, not a new subject in the book of John. John 1, 1 said in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then verse 14 says, and the word who is Jesus was made flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. So some people say Jesus never claimed to be divine. Well, all contraire, he did claim to be divine over and over. And if he ever had an opportunity to put the record straight and say, oh, no, 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 no. Now what I was really trying to say, he's my father and, and everything. And I do the kinds of things he does, but you know, not really, I'm not really divine. He could have put it straight. He did not. I could go through the scriptures and show how time and again, he received worship as God, many, many other things. But the Jews understood him to be claiming to be divine. Jesus did not deny it. And, and uh, he even said it over and over. They were just now catching up to what he was saying. In chapter 2, verse 16, when he turned over the tables in the temple, when they were selling goods in the temple, uh, he turned over the tables. He said, look, you have made my father's house a den of thieves. He said it then. They just didn't catch it. He said it again in John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. He sent his only begotten son. In other words, right there, he was claiming to be the son of the God who sent him. And then verse 17 and 18 in chapter four, verse 23. But listen to these verses, scratch down the references. These are beautiful. Jesus confessing to be God. John 8, 58 to 59. He said, when they were questioning him and they asked him who he was, he said, I am. And they picked up stones to kill him because he was claiming to be Jehovah of the Old Testament. John 10, 33. Why are you, why are you persecuting me? Well, not for your good works, but because being a man, you make yourself out to be God. John 19, seven. The law says he must die because in doing these things and saying these things, he makes himself out to be God. Everyone who heard him speak and saw him act, they believed that he was saying that he was God. You see, Pastor Phil, you're really doubling down on this. Folks, I want, to, I want you to understand it's getting to be very popular today that, that around the world, even among so-called evangelicals, that, any, that, that they can talk about Jesus as a good teacher, a good example, and all kinds of things, but something less than God. He was a son of God, but not the son of God. I want to, I'm here to tell you this morning, Jesus is God come in the flesh, and to believe any other things, thing is condemnation. It is so very important. Number two, Jesus claimed equal power with God. Equal power, verses 19 to 23. And the first thing it says is he knows what his father knows. He has equal knowledge. He knows what his father knows. He has equal knowledge. Look at verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son does also in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him even greater works than these that you may marvel. I want you to note some words. In this translation, the New King James Version, it uses the words most assuredly. Your translation might say truly, truly, or verily, verily. Let me tell you what it really says. The Greek actually says two words. It says the same word twice. It says, amen, amen. Most assuredly, truly, truly, verily, verily, amen, amen. You say, well, what is that about? Well, it is true. It is true. It's kind of interesting. We say amen after somebody says something good. Jesus says amen, amen. Listen, what I'm about to say is good. 
Amen, amen. It is true. Did you ever wonder why we say amen? We say amen because what has been said is true, trustworthy, right, and worthy. Amen. Jesus is working in this passage in submission to his father. Like his father, he is working. In unity with his father, he is working. John 10, 30 says, I and my father are one. He's gonna say this three times in the passage. He says, in, uh, he says there, uh, verse 19, most assuredly. Verse 24, most assuredly. Verse 25, most assuredly. Or basically, he starts off and says three big things. And he says, amen, amen. Well, folks, it's a spiritual thing. Did you ever wonder why we even, where'd that come from? Why do we even say that? Why are these weird old loud mouths from 1950? Why do they just have to keep saying amen in church and distracting everybody? Because when we hear the truth and the spirit of God in our, in our soul witnesses with the truth, it's the normal, right, and actual thing to let everybody else know. Amen, amen, it is true, it is true. Listen to it, it's worthy of your attention. Amen? Amen, amen. That's not just something that's some, some hick from the backwoods added into the church service. The Bible says it. Jesus said it. Amen, amen. It's so incredible. Here's what he says to those guys that are there. He says, hey, boys, look here. He says, that healing you just saw just a moment ago was a duet. It was a joint performance. My father and I did that. Jesus sees what the father is doing. And then it says in the same passage, not only that, but the father delights to show him everything that he's doing. What father doesn't delight to show his son and to show him what he's doing so that he can learn and mimic it. There is tremendous intimacy between these two because the father loves him. I want you to look at that in verse number 20. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. The father loves the son. You know, we're real used to this me-centered Christianity. It's all about me, what I want. Oh, Jesus loves me, this I know. Yes, he does. Amen. Well, John 3, 16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We love that. He loved us. He loves us. But I'm here to announce something to you. He didn't love us anywhere near like he loves his son. The father loves his son. You know, there's a thought out there that there was this implacable, mean God in the Old Testament. And he was just, you know, he was surly and he was mean and he just wasn't forgiving. There just had to be somebody to save us from the father. And so Jesus, the meek, mild and lowly came along and he's the one that we really, really love. And he just went in and he died and he built a bridge and he just took care of us. With a, No, I want to tell you something. The Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit were in total harmony and unity in the plan of salvation before the foundation of the world. Jesus was not a relenting, reluctant Savior. Jesus was part of the plan. Jesus and the Father and with the Holy Spirit as witness and the engendering person of the Trinity, the empowering, they planned it. And I'm here to tell you this morning, the Father loves the Son. But you know what that means for us? Because if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Because John 1, 12 says, if we, if we received him to them, he gave he power to become the what? Sons and daughters of God. And it's a good thing that he loves his children. He loves his son and I'm included because I have received his son. I'm included in the family. Amen. amen. How about amen, amen? Amen. It's true. It's true. He loves us, but oh, how he loves his son. He loves Jesus. I'm glad he does. Three times in the gospels, he says, this is my beloved son and I'm so pleased with him. 
Never make the mistake that God loves us more than he loves his son. Even the language here is beautiful family language. He doesn't use the word that we would expect for the word love. He doesn't use the word agape, which is this divine love that's beyond human comprehension. No, no, no. It's the simple, understandable word phileo, brotherly love, family love. God, brotherly family loves the son and he loves you like that too. You're in the family. It's beautiful. We can identify with him and identify with that. They agreed then, the father, the son, with the plan to rescue us from sin's ravages. And he's been doing some great things Jesus has on planet earth, some great miracles. He's turned water to wine and he's helped the sick to get well. But the best is yet to come. He's going to raise the widow's son at Nain from the dead. And he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And then eventually he's going to raise himself from the dead. The next thing I want you to see is not only does he know what the father knows, but he does what the father does. That's equal works. Look at verse 21. As the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son, that all should honor the son as they honor the father. He who does not honor the father does not honor the, he who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. He does what his father does. These are equal works. The Jews thought of the father as the one who raised the dead, not Jesus, Deuteronomy 32, 39 and Acts 26, 8. The Jews uh, believed that it was the father who exercised all judgment. I've got a whole litany of verses here. Let me just read one, Psalm 82, 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. But here in this passage, God raises the dead and he gives life and Jesus claims to do the, two, do the same thing. He says he will give it to whomever he wishes. He can raise the dead and he's going to do it, the literally dead physical, but here the focus is spiritual deadness. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 is a real wake up factor to all of us that every single person on planet earth was born dead in sin. We are guilty from the beginning. We're guilty of our father's sin. We're guilty because of inheritance. We're guilty because of preference. We're guilty because of practice. We are sinners and we are guilty because of that. We are dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter two, verse one, people say, well, what is it that keeps people? What, what sin is it that keeps people from, from, from being able to go to heaven? Well, it's not just the sin. It's the fact that you're dead. Dead people don't go to heaven. Only living people go to heaven. You has he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, Jesus said. Colossians 2.13 says it another way. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh has he made alive together with him. You see, Jesus has power equal with the Father. He gives life to whoever he will. We're talking about spiritual life. We're talking about the fact that before we come to Jesus, we have no connection, no relationship. We are not hooked up with God. He's not our Father. We are just the children of this world and of the devil until we're born again, brought in to his family and his spirit is put in us, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, by the seal of the Holy Spirit once we trust Jesus as our Savior. Something else I want you to see, he's equal to the Father in what he knows and what he does, but he deserves worship like the Father. He deserves equal honor. Look at verse number 23. That, in verse 22, for the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. That, in other words, for the purpose of that all should honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. He deserves worship like his father. There are people all over that are happy to talk about God. God this, God that, oh God, I'm just trusting God. Well, that's wonderful. I'm glad, but, but let, let's get specific and talk about his son. They 
People are ready to talk about God a lot, even in the media, but they don't want to talk about Jesus Christ. No reverence for him. The name of Jesus is mocked today, ridiculed today, used as a byword today. It's even used in conjunction with all sorts of cursing. And I want to pull over and I want to say something that I even hear among evangelicals. I've even heard it from certain members of our church. In conversation, this, that, or the other, and they want to, you know, they're saying something, they want to give sort of some sort of emotional response, and they'll say, oh, Jesus, I'm going to tell you something this morning, that is not okay. Because you are not calling out his name in worship. You're not calling out his name in prayer. You're not calling out his name for the sharing of the evangelism of the gospel. You're just saying that word and it's tantamount to a curse word and a blasphemy. Don't just be throwing that name around like it's another word to express your emotion. Do you understand me this morning? You say, well, boy, you're preaching with authority. I am. I'm here to tell you that the world ridicules Jesus. They hate Jesus. They mock Jesus. They make fun of Jesus. Well, I'm here to tell you that Jesus is the savior of the world. He's the second person of the Trinity. He died for our sins and we just, he deserves honor. Honor. Jesus is given the judgment so that people will recognize his authority. There are people all over that are happy to talk about God, but not Jesus. Jesus here says that there's such oneness, unity, harmony of function that you cannot bypass the son to go to the father. This is serious business. John 15, 23, he who hates me hates the father also. First John 2, 23, same biblical author. Whoever denies the son does not have the father either. He who acknowledges the son has the father also. Do you understand this? The way to the father in heaven is through the son. The will of the father in heaven is explained in word by the deeds and the words of the son. First John 5, 12, it says it this way. He that has the son of God has life. He that has not the son of God does not have life, period. People who want to talk about Jesus as a great teacher, a great example, just a, you know, a great soul, a great shepherd of the sheep. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus is God come in the flesh and you're not going to the father except through him. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And what is that name? Jesus. Finally, Jesus claimed to be the life source equal to his father. He's the life source. Look at verse 25. Most assuredly, there it is again. Amen. Amen. Jesus starts his, starts his commentary with amen. We finish ours. He starts his. Amen, amen. I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, he has granted the Son to have life in his, himself also. There are four resurrections that are mentioned in these verses. Quickly, let me give them to you. Verse 25, Jesus raises the spiritually dead to life. Amen, amen. This is true, folks. Some can hear the sweet call of the gospel, and some can't or either are stopping their ears. Remember the parable of the soils. When, they, when the soils, the four kinds of soil received the seed, only one of them received the seed and showed any evidence of life. Key in on the phrase, the hour is coming and now is. There's a resurrection going on all the time. Resurrection from spiritual deadness to spiritual life. He's calling people to life. Can you hear him calling? Has he called you to life? Have you responded to his call of the spirit? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Have you heard him? Have you answered? Then he's calling 
calling the spiritually dead to life. Verse number 26. In verse number 26, it says, For the Father has life in himself and has also granted the Son to have life in himself. This is beautiful. Jesus rose from the dead himself. This is the second type of resurrection. Jesus is equal to the Father in that he has life in himself. He is the life source. Way back in John 1, 4, it said at the beginning when we began the study, in Jesus, in him was life and the life was the light of men. All I can say is hallelujah. Death could not make life stop living. Folks, death couldn't hold Jesus. Peter preached it, Acts 2, 23. Him, Jesus, being delivered by the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by your lawless hands and have crucified and put him to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death. Why? Because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Jesus is the life source along with the Father. He is the reason there is life, both spiritual and physical. He is the life source. Take away the life source and there's no life at all. He could not be held by it. Acts 3.15, you denied the Holy One and the Just One and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the Prince of Life. But God raised him from the dead. I just want to tell you this morning, Satan and sin are death dealers, but Jesus and the Father are life givers. He's given you life. How many of you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? Raise your hand, say amen. amen. Well, then you've received life because the Father and the Son are life givers. Satan and sin are death dealers. The devil thought he had Jesus just where he wanted him in the tomb. Jesus was announcing at that very time the victory to those who were waiting in Abraham's bosom and in the presence of the Father. He led, he led that train in victory into the Father's presence. No, he wasn't defeated. Verse 28 and 29 are very important. Jesus is going to raise the believing dead to eternal life. And they shall never die. Verse number 28, do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Wow. Jesus is going re- to raise the believing dead to eternal life and then they will never die, perish or cease. Read this clearly. An hour is coming and now is, that's verse number 25. He is raising people up spiritually right now. And then he was calling people into spiritual resurrection. But here in 28 and 29, he's calling people from the tomb, dead people. He's gonna do so with his voice. And I just wanna tell you at that point when Jesus says, rise up, nobody's gonna be saying, no, I think I'll pass. Nobody's gonna be able to say no to Jesus at that point. Rise up. Those that are believers are going to be raised to eternal life. The first group he will raise are believers and they gave evidence of their faith by their deeds and by the way they live. They're gonna rise to life. Verse number 29, again, Jesus is gonna raise the unbelieving dead, but they're gonna be raised to judgment. They gave evidence of their, by their deeds and the way they live. Now I skip verse 27. This is a This is one of those aha moments that created a real stir in the office this week. When I studied this and read it and read it and read it, I mean, I had one of those Bapticostal fits. I don't know what happens to me, but every once in a while I read something that just didn't dawn on me before. And I got up and pranced around my office and jumped across the chairs and I went and told Marty and went and told Kirby. And I I just had to tell everybody I could when I, I want you to see this. This, this is, is stunning. 
they gave evidence by their deeds. I skip verse 27, read 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of God or the son of man. Now let's look at it together. Back in verse number 25, he is the son, he, uh, he is the son of God and those who obey him will live. Verse 27, he has authority to judge because he is the son of man. You say, well, which is it? It says in verse number 25, he is the son of God. Verse 25, the son of God. Verse number 27, the son of man. Well, which is it, Pastor Bill? Is he the son of God or is he the son of man? Yes. That's the point. He is the divine son of God and he is the son of God who put on human flesh and lived among us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth and he did it in human flesh. He became a man. Jonathan quoted it in the first service and God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. How did he do that? Because he was able to put him in a body to receive the guilt of our sin. Now watch this. Please don't don't blink out on me. We've been reading about the union, the unity, the intimacy, the harmony of the Father and the Son. Jesus, as the Son, knows God the Father. Verses, uh, the verses that we read at the first, verse 18 and 19, 20, talk about how Jesus only did what he saw the Father was doing, and the Father, in turn, was happy to show him everything he was doing. They did it all in harmony and unity. He is the Son of God. What do you mean? He only truly knows his holiness and his requirement. Only Jesus knows what it's like in heaven. Only Jesus has seen the face of the Father. Only Jesus has heard him speak personally. Only Jesus has been in his presence like that. He knows what's required to be in God's presence. And only Jesus took on human flesh and became a man. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. Now let me quote a Bible verse to you. In 1 Timothy chapter, chapter 2 and verse 5 says that there is just one mediator between God and man. He is the man Christ Jesus. Does that make sense now? Do you understand it? In other words, he's the son of God. He understands what the father requires. He's the son of man. He knows what the mankind has done. He knows their need and their sin. He knows both. And he lays himself down on the cross in between them. Jesus is the bridge between the father and the son dying for our sins, opening the way up so that we can go to the father. You see, he's the son of God and he's the son of man. And therefore he's the right one and the only one. Do you understand why there is salvation and no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved? Do you understand that? Because there's only one mediator. One, his name is Jesus. And I'm here to tell you something this morning. He died for you. He did it. There was no big argument in heaven over who was going to come to earth and do the dying. Take No, 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 no. They planned it together. The Father, the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It was from the beginning they planned for the redemption of mankind. This was not a reluctant, rebellious son willing to obey the Father because he made him do it. No, no, no. This was the happy, joyful trinity planning to redeem all of us through love. And he did it on the cross. Are you glad to be saved this morning? Oh, this is so important. Jesus bridged the gap. I got to read verse 24 and finish. I'm supposed to be done, but I can't skip this. Look at verse number 24. This is the, this is the gospel in a verse. Another one of those amen, amen verses. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. 
Break it down. Hear my word, who's speaking, Jesus is. Listen to him. Believe in him who sent me. Believe that he sent from the Father and has a link with him and knows him. And then receive him. Receive, that means has everlasting life, a never-ending quality of life, not just a quantity of life. And then shall not come to judgment. Why will we not come to judgment? Because praise God, all of my sin was placed on him. Jesus took all of my sin on himself. There's no sin for me to die for because Jesus paid it all. And then we passed over from death to life. Jesus mediated this marvelous reconciliation. You were dead, now you're alive forevermore. You've come alive. Jesus is the bridge between God and man over the chasm of sin and condemnation, and we passed over. Now I want you to stop and think about this. Now we've called us from death to life. He's called us from the old man to the new man. He's called us from not in the family of God to in the family of God. And the biggest thing is that it's, an issue, it's a situation where I have passed over from death to life. Now, I want you to think about this with me for a moment. Sometimes people come up to me and say, Pastor Phil, I called on Jesus to save me, but to my surprise, I still sin from time to time. Anybody like that? And I feel bad and, the, and the, my conscience gets me and I feel guilty and I don't know what to do about it. And I'm just so worried. And the devil sits on my shoulder and says, see there, you big hypocrite, you're not even saved. You think you're something, you're going to hell. And I mean, the devil just works on us. But I want you to understand something that whenever we say yes to Jesus, we pass over from death to life. Now imagine this. I passed over from death to life, but oops, I sinned. Now I'm dead again. Oh, and then I can be alive again. And then dead, does that make any sense? No, we come alive in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you something on the authority of the word of God. You can never harm the relationship. But you can mess up the fellowship. Husbands and wives, raise your hand. There is a relationship between you, a covenant. It's supposed to be, in the eyes of God, permanent. But even with a permanent relationship, are there times that the fellowship between you is not quite what it ought to be? Raise your hand. Get it? Jesus saved me from my sins, folk, and I have passed over from life, from death to life. I'm alive in Jesus. I'm in his family. I'm his son. And the Bible says he's given me everlasting life. I've come alive. Have you? Have you heard his call? Have you called his name? Have you said yes to Jesus? Have you said, save me from my sin? Have you passed over? We'll talk to you about it. Love to. But I'm just here to tell you this morning, amen, amen. It is true. It's worthy. And it's, and it's right that I passed from death to life through Jesus. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Have you passed from death to life? Have you called on Jesus? Have you had a spiritual resurrection? If not, talk to us. Father, add your blessing to the preaching of your word. Save that soul that's nearest hell. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.